I married a woman who loves to camp, and I am what you would call indoorsy. I'm surprised we can still get people to camp. Hey, want to burn a couple of vacation days sleeping on the ground outside? Uh, no. You'll wake up freezing covered in a rash. All right, I'll go. My wife always brings up, camping's a tradition in my family. Hey, it was a tradition in everyone's family till we came up with a house. My parents never took me camping. You know why? Because they loved me. It'll get you closer to nature. I want to keep the relationship professional. If it's so great outside, why are all the bugs trying to get in my house? Happy camper. Has anyone ever really been a happy camper? Because whenever we use that term, we're being sarcastic. He is not a happy camper. Why don't we just call him a camper? He's miserable. You know who's a happy camper? The guy leaving the campsite. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Hope and welcome to the great outdoors. Uh, great big welcome. Great big welcome to those of you joining us from one of Hope's campuses across central Iowa that is not Ankeny, whether it's Ames or Bondurant, Des Moines, Grimes. I even saw some people here from Waukee, Hope Waukee. So welcome, everybody. And, and again, as we get started, could you just praise God with me for so many volunteers who've been hard at work and so much staff just making plans and then changing plans and being worried about 80% chances of thunderstorm and lightning all week long. Praise God with me by clapping your hands uh, for everyone who's made it possible, trailers and equipment and uh, circles out in the lawn. And anyway, it's just been... Uh, it's been fun to actually do something together in, in ways that we like to. So, um, boy, if you are new to Hope, my name is Scott Rains, and I'm the lead pastor here, and like Jim Gaffigan, I am indoorsy. And so when, when we started talking about, well, maybe we could have an outdoor worship service, I was filled with a mixture of both great joy and great dread. Uh, joy because I was looking forward to gathering together with all of you for worship in person, in the same place, same location, and then dread because, like he said, bugs and heat and lightning and who knows uh, what else. The, the truth is, I am very uncomfortable outside. I'm very uncomfortable outside, and I do a whole lot of work. I spend a whole lot of time and energy in my life thinking about and planning for my comfort. Back in early March, when our college-age kids were told, don't come back to your college campus following spring break, just stay home. And then our uh, school-age kids here locally were told, don't come back to school, just stay home. And then we said, don't come back to the church building for worship, we'll worship online. And my job shifted to a whole lot of Zoom meetings and Zoom classes and social media posts. Things got very uncomfortable in a hurry. And so I'm excited that we're gathered here together for worship outside but did you see this week there's like a bear roaming around all over Iowa and I was thinking with my luck the bear is probably going to show up here uh, for our outdoor worship service I'm just completely uncomfortable being outside but maybe all of this 
you know, discomfort and all the stuff that makes me uncomfortable. Maybe that's why my wife Wendy and I decided this would be a good time to purchase a new mattress. Uh, if, if everything else is completely out of my control, at least I can control how comfortable my mattress is. So I don't know when the last time you went mattress shopping was, but I got out the Google machine and I typed in, you know, what's the best mattress for people who are pretty much over the hill? And, that, and that's not me, but I hope eventually I will be by the time I'm done using that mattress. And you know, what's the best mattress for sleeping on a side or sleeping on your stomach or sleeping on your back? And I watched hours of videos of, of people reviewing mattresses. And I, I went to different websites and I read articles all because I wanted to get one mattress that would make me comfortable for eight hours every night. And I wonder if that is something we all have in common, uh, whether you typically attend Hope Ankeny or, or one of the other campuses at Hope, whether you're a church person or not, a Jesus person or not, I wonder how many of us make decisions through the filter of comfort. And, and don't misunderstand me. I am in no way suggesting there's something wrong with comfort. There's nothing wrong with comfort. All kinds of people have been gifted, I think, by God to make my life more comfortable to put together mattresses that are comfortable, to you know, put together furniture that's comfortable and HVAC systems so we can have air conditioning in the summer the way God intended and heating in the winter, you know, that sort of thing. I, in fact, when you read through the Bible, one of the things you see that is true about God, God provides comfort to people who are in need of comfort. There is nothing wrong with comfort until comfort gets in the way of following Jesus. There's nothing wrong with comfort until comfort gets in the way of following Jesus. So we're making our way this month through the Gospel of Luke, and we're looking at different miracle stories, healings that happen in the Gospel of Luke. In, in Luke chapter 9, it begins by telling us Jesus is sending out his 12 core disciples in mission, and he wants them to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God, and he wants them to heal people of their diseases. In the middle of Luke chapter 9, there's the account of the miraculous feeding of 5,000. And biblical scholars are very quick these days to point out, you know, the crowd was more than uh, 5,000. Uh, it was 5,000 men. They just didn't count the women and children. And that should make us a little uncomfortable that there was a time in history when women and children didn't count. So is the crowd 5,000 or 10,000 or 15,000 or 20,000? Nobody knows for sure. It's just a big crowd. A whole lot of people at that point in Jesus' ministry are very interested in following him. They show up when he teaches, and then they follow him from place to place. And at the end of Luke chapter 9, Jesus and that group of 12 core disciples were walking down the road, but a whole bunch of other disciples, a whole bunch of other people were following Jesus. And one of them runs up to Jesus and says, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. This is like a Jesus groupie. This is a Jesus fanboy. He loves the miraculous displays of power that he knows happen pretty regularly around Jesus, whether it's healing people of their diseases, whether it's Jesus having the power to control weather. And so this guy says to Jesus, I love that. I want to be as close to that as I possibly can. I will follow you, Jesus, wherever you go. And let's read together how Jesus responds to this man. It's on the screen, and let's read it out loud together. 
Foxes have dens to live in, and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place even to lay his head. It's almost like Jesus is saying, great, I want you to follow me. I want everyone to follow me. But let's make sure we're on the same page as we get started. If you say yes to Jesus, if you say yes to Jesus' way, if you say yes to loving the way Jesus loves, it will not always be comfortable. Sometimes it'll be very uncomfortable. Our Bible story for today, uh, as we continue this message series, Healing Happens, comes from Luke chapter 13. So if you have your Bibles or your Bible app, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 13. And this is a story that's filled with a whole lot of discomfort. I'm just going to keep this closed because the wind's going to blow it anyway. We'll see what I can remember. All sorts of discomfort in this story, beginning with the main character, a woman whose name we don't know, but Luke tells us for the last 18 years she's been bent double. She's been bent over double. I went and worked out this week, lifted some weights for the first time since the whole COVID thing started. I can barely stand up straight right now, I'm telling you. And if I had to feel this way for 18 years, I just, I don't even know what I would do. This woman has been bent double, unable to stand up straight for 18 years. She's experiencing physical discomfort, but it's more than physical discomfort. There would have been emotional discomfort and social discomfort. It's really important to pay attention to the details that Luke gives us as he's walking us through this encounter that Jesus has. He says, one Sabbath day, as Jesus was teaching in a synagogue, he saw a woman who had been crippled by an evil spirit. And so one of the first details I notice is what day it is. It's the Sabbath day. And the Sabbath day is a holy day, a day of pausing to focus on God, to worship God, to reflect on who God is, what God is up to in our lives. The Sabbath day is also a day of rest, resting from our labor, resting from our work. And so to honor the Sabbath, to remember the Sabbath, to keep the Sabbath was a really important thing for people in Jesus' day. And all sorts of rules and laws had been made around what does it look like to keep the Sabbath, to obey that commandment to keep the Sabbath. More on that in just a little bit. The second detail I notice is the location. It's a synagogue. And synagogue is a Greek word, but synagogues existed well before the Greeks kind of took over and and then the Romans followed them. Very early on in the history of the nation of Israel, a synagogue was basically, it functioned as a community center. And the village life kind of revolved around this place, this building called the synagogue. It's where people would gather uh, for school. It's where the courtroom was. It's, it's where you know dis- judgments were made or as it related to the law. It's where they would gather to pray and just kind of where they would gather for community activities. After the exile, the focus of the synagogue changed. And, and the exile is when in come the enemies of God's people, the Assyrians and the Babylonians. They conquer Israel, they conquer Jerusalem, and carry many of those people away to these foreign lands as exiles in captivity. And everyone understands the reason that this has happened is because they have failed to obey the commandments of God. 
And so after the exile, for the 400 years leading up to the birth of Jesus, the focus of the synagogue became study of Scripture and interpretation of Scripture, the Torah, especially God's law, so that everyone would understand this is what obedience looks like. Because if we know what obedience looks like and we do it, then bad things will not happen to us. And so here's Jesus in a synagogue on the Sabbath day, surrounded by people for whom obedience to the law was their primary focus. We want to obey the law. We want to focus on obedience to the law so that bad things do not happen to us. So we we don't get punished for our disobedience. If that's the primary view that they have about scripture and about God and about how the world works, how do you think they view this woman? How do you think they see her? How does she see herself? If we can, can we just all stand up for a second and let's just kind of practice this. Everybody stand up and as best you can, without falling over, just try to bend over until you're bent over double, as close as you can get without falling over. Now for me to try to be like this for even 18 seconds, how uncomfortable is that? 18 years for this woman, and this woman is absolutely convinced she's in this condition because of her inability to be obedient to the word of God. And everybody in that synagogue with Jesus that day, they believe the same thing. They're convinced she's in this condition because of her inability to obey the word, the commands of God. You can stand up and you can sit back down and make yourselves comfortable. Make yourselves comfortable. Luke says she's crippled by an evil spirit. The story continues, and I think the next verse is one of the most powerful verses in all of Scripture. Can, can we read this next verse together? Read it with me. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Dear woman, you are healed of your sickness. It's a powerful verse, and I'm guessing... A lot of us would say, yeah, the the power in this verse is at the end of the verse when this woman gets healed of her sickness. I want to suggest to you, I think the most powerful part of this verse are the first four words. When Jesus saw her. When Jesus saw her. This woman who's been bent double for 18 years, she has literally been overlooked for 18 years. People looked over her, but not Jesus. Jesus does not overlook this woman. Jesus sees her when Jesus saw her. First he sees her, then he heals her. I wonder. I wonder what it is in each of our lives. I wonder what it is in our communities that is in need of healing, but for one reason or another, we're not seeing it. I wonder what it is in our lives, in our community that's in need of healing, and instead we're overlooking it. More on that later. The story continues. I'll see if I can get my Bible to stay open. If I stand right here, yes. So Jesus has healed her, but verse 14 says, the leader in charge of the synagogue was indignant that Jesus had healed her on the Sabbath day. There are six days of the week for working. He said to the crowd, come on those days to be healed, not on the Sabbath. 
And it makes sense to me that this leader is upset. He's focused his entire life. His vocation is about helping people stay safe from bad things that might happen if they are disobedient. He understands we need to be obedient. We need to follow the rules so that God doesn't punish us. So bad things don't happen to us. You could say, in the context of comfort, like we've been talking about today, he believes the rules keep him comfortable. Or the rules keep him from being uncomfortable. Following the rules keeps him comfortable. Not following the rules leads to discomfort. And so here's Jesus messing with his rules. And that makes him uncomfortable. And in his discomfort, he says to everyone there, listen, Come the rest of the week. There's six days a week you can come and you can get healed, but do not come on the Sabbath day expecting to be healed. No healing on the Sabbath. No healing in this place of prayer. No healing in the house of God. I mean, when you start to say it out loud, you start to see how ridiculous that is. And now it's Jesus' turn to be angry. Hypocrites. Hypocrites, he says, not just to the religious leader, but to everyone there. Each of you works on the Sabbath. Don't you untie your ox or your donkey from its stall on the Sabbath and you lead it out for water. This dear woman, a daughter of Abraham, has been held in bondage by Satan for 18 years. Isn't it right that she be released even on the Sabbath? She's been held in bondage, Jesus says. This healing is about moving from bondage to freedom. From slavery to freedom. I love this story. I love the power of Jesus. I love the way he heals it. And I especially love it when I read through the story and I put myself in the place of this woman. Because there are times in my life, I'm sure there are in yours too, times when you feel overlooked. Times when you're like, why isn't anyone listening to me or paying attention to me? Times when that sense of being overlooked causes you to be hurt. And so one of the lessons, it seems to me, in this story is God sees you and God loves you. No matter what is going on in your life, no matter what has happened to you, no matter what you have done to others that has caused hurt, and you're like, is there healing for this? Yes, God sees you, God loves you, and God can heal you. It's one of the lessons of this story, and it's an awesome lesson, an important, a powerful lesson. It's not the only lesson in this story. Sometimes we need to read through this story and put ourselves in the shoes of the leader of the synagogue or the people who have assembled that day in the synagogue, the people who are completely focused on following the rules because they know following the rules leads to a more comfortable life. And it seems to me if we look through the story from that particular lens, from that vantage point, one of the lessons becomes when our love of comfort outweighs our love of neighbor, we need to be healed. When our love of comfort outweighs our love of neighbor, we need to be healed. We need God to heal us. I said at the beginning of the message, I'm indoorsy. It's uncomfortable for me to be outdoors for worship. And there's all sorts of reasons for that because I just look right over there at our nice air-conditioned building. And I think about the really nice seats that there are in there for us to sit on. And I think about our 
you know, state-of-the-art audio video equipment and that I get a, a headset microphone so I can be cool like Britney Spears and I don't even have to hold my microphone at that point. I can just hold the Bible, the Word of God, and the wind won't mess with, and everything will be comfortable. It'll be great. So this is a good time to remind me and to remind all of us, worship's not about our comfort. Worship's not about our comfort. Worship isn't about an encounter with the living God. And yes, sometimes, sometimes we encounter the God of comfort in worship who meets us in our hurt, who meets us in our pain, who, who meets us in our guilt. And God, in his grace and love and forgiveness, God is like this healing balm that we all need. And, and we get comforted when we encounter God. And sometimes the God who encounters us in worship is a God who causes great discomfort. One of our core values at Hope is following Jesus is a growing experience. If you're going to grow, you're going to experience growing pains. It's going to be uncomfortable at times, but healthy things grow. And we want to be healthy. We want to grow. And that means we have to get comfortable being uncomfortable. We have to welcome discomfort. God-given discomfort is actually a good thing. This is how we grow as followers of Jesus. There's been a lot of uncomfortable things happening in the world the last several months. Let's start with COVID-19. I don't need a show of hands or anything, but anybody just love wearing masks? Anybody just like, you know, even though it's a worldwide pandemic, when that ends, I'm going to still wear my mask because it's just so dang comfortable. And it, it's so stylish, as a matter of fact. And when I'm wearing my mask, I don't have to worry about, do I have bad breath or not? I just, it masks my bad breath. It's great. I'm going to just always wear masks from this point on. Nobody thinks that. Everybody thinks masks are uncomfortable. So I just wanted to say, why is it that we're asking you to wear masks when we gather together for worship? And listen, I don't have a mask on right now, right? And when you're in your circles, we just practice some common sense. These are people you've been quarantined with uh, for months probably. You probably don't need to wear your mask when you're sitting in your circle. But when you get up to walk back to your car, the reason we're asking you to wear masks, we're not going to be the mask police about this, but the reason we're asking you to is because our best understanding the best way to reduce risk of spreading a virus, you're safer if you're outdoors than if you're indoors. You're safer if you're socially distanced than if you're not socially distanced. You're safer if you're wearing a mask than if you're not wearing mask, as it relates to spreading the virus. So this is not us say, sitting around saying, let's come up with some rules that we can see how obedient our congregation is. It's not about that. Grace to you, grace to you, grace to you. We just think, what's the best way to love our neighbor? And if we have to be uncomfortable and wear masks for 70 minutes so we can gather together for worship, that seems like a pretty good trade-off to me. Besides that, it's biblical. Let's read this verse together. Philippians 2, verse 4. Again, it's on the screen. Read it out loud with me. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. I think this is just the way the sinful nature works within each of us. The, the easy, natural, comfortable thing for each of us is to focus on self-interest. But what scripture challenges us to do, if we're serious about following Jesus, 
is to grow to a place where we're also able to focus on the interests of others. I mentioned earlier in the message, I wonder what are those things in our lives, what are those things in our community that we are overlooking, things that need to be healed, but we're overlooking them. And and probably the reason, one of the primary reasons we're overlooking them is because we're comfortable. It seems to me racial injustice in this country is one of those things we continue to overlook. And in the last couple of weeks, it's come front and center. And we have no longer been able to overlook it. And I think for a lot of us, it's been very uncomfortable for all kinds of reasons. You know, incidents of police brutality, that's well documented. And I think there's a temptation for us to kind of turn the police into the scapegoat and say, yeah, if we could just get police reform, law enforcement reform, then all of a sudden, magically, all of the racial division in our country would be gone just like that. I don't think it's that easy. And so I would challenge each one of us to just go to God with this one and ask God to be at work inside of us, opening our eyes, helping us see things that for whatever reason we are overlooking absolutely in society, but also in our own lives, in our own relationships, in our own activities. And it's probably going to make a lot of us uncomfortable. And I think that's a good thing. That's how we grow. So let me just tell you a little bit about my own sort of walk through all of this. I used to be really uncomfortable with the phrase white privilege. This is America for crying out loud. This is the place where everybody comes because they know this is the land of opportunity. This is the place where hard work gets rewarded. We love rags to riches stories in this country. We love to see the stories of people who overcome all sorts of obstacles and make something of themselves. So let me tell you a rags to riches story. This is O.W. Gurley, upper left-hand corner of the screen. And O.W. Gurley was born on Christmas Day, 1868, in Huntsville, Alabama. His parents were former enslaved Africans, received their freedom, And when he was eight years old, they moved the family to Arkansas. When he was 21 years old, newly married, it was in 1889, he took part in the Oklahoma land rush. They were homesteading Oklahoma, and he was able to get a parcel of land. As you can imagine, 24 years after the Civil War, not very many black landowners in this country. But O.W. Gurley got some land, and he was a talented, skilled businessman and entrepreneur. 17 years later, by 1906, he was able to purchase uh, 40 acres of land in Tulsa, Oklahoma. A year later, 1907, Oklahoma became the 46th state of the United States. And one of the first pieces of legislation that the government of this new state passed was a separate but equal Jim Crow law that said, we got to make sure black people in Oklahoma and white people in Oklahoma don't come close to each other. So one of the things that that meant was this 40 acres of land that he had in Tulsa, he could only sell it to other black people. And that's what he did. And it didn't take very long for this thriving community called the Greenwood District 
to develop. All kind of spearheaded by this guy, A.W. Gurley. Josie Pickens is a professor of literature and composition at Texas Southern University, wrote an article in Ebony uh, Magazine where she described the Greenwood District of Tulsa, Oklahoma this way. This modern, majestic, sophisticated, and unapologetically black community boasted of banks, hotels, cafes, clothiers, movie theaters, and contemporary homes, not to mention luxuries such as indoor plumbing and a remarkable school system that superiorly educated black children. A.W. Gurley was one of the founders and developers of the Greenwood District, which affectionately became known as Black Wall Street. He was also the principal of a school in Perry, Oklahoma. He was one of the founders of the Vernon AME Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He was the epitome of the American dream. He was the American dream embodied. He had done it. And up until the last couple of weeks, I'd never heard of O.W. Gurley. I'd never heard of Black Wall Street. And, and I love history. I was never taught this in school. I never have found it in any of the other historical books or stories that, that I've, I've read. I'd never heard about this. And maybe you say, well, come on, Scott. There's lots of stories like this. Lots of communities like this. You can't teach everything in school, and absolutely, that's true. But I just wonder if perhaps there might be another reason why we've never heard of O.W. Gurley and the Black Wall Street of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Here's a video to teach us a little more. Take a look. Between the 1870s and the beginning of World War I, black pioneers settled more than 100 all-black towns in the West each with the goal of economic independence. Among the most well-known was a black district in Tulsa, Oklahoma, known by its residents as Greenwood. If we were to go back in time to 1920 and walk up and down Greenwood Avenue, one thing that would probably strike us is the absolute variety of businesses. The numbers are astonishing, 30 restaurants, 45 groceries and meat markets. There were dry goods stores, milliners, a photography studio, dental offices. Greenwood is no longer called Greenwood. It's now known as Black Wall Street. This whole idea of self-containment really existed there. The dollar would stay in that community sometimes over three, five years before it ever went outside of the community. In 1919, black soldiers returned from World War I with high expectations for racial progress at home. But in one city after another, white mobs erupted in violence, targeting black veterans, citizens, and businesses. Hundreds died. On Tulsa's Black Wall Street, African Americans, including armed veterans, watched nervously and prepared for what might come. Countering this white militancy is very much an African-American spirit of, we're going to defend ourselves. If the mob comes, we're not going to run. We've got our guns, and we're going to protect ourselves. And that was especially important and valuable and potent in Greenwood. On May 30th, 1921, 
the mob came to Greenwood. This white woman is in an elevator, and this black teenager allegedly whistles at her or talks to her. He is taken to jail. A mob gathers of whites and blacks, and blacks in Tulsa are armed. They take their Second Amendment rights seriously, and they come with guns. And this is a threat. Someone fires into the crowd, and the riot is born. This was not about the whistling boy in the elevator. This was about blacks becoming too economically powerful and showing that wealth in a way that anyone would by creating buildings and constructing churches and having property. There was a, a whistle that blew, and then the mass invasion and the destruction of Greenwood began. When the smoke cleared in the early morning of June 1st, 1921, Black Wall Street lay in ruins. This is by far the largest single incident of racial violence in all of American history. It was that last line that really stood out to me. By far the largest instance of racial violence in American history and most of us have never heard of it. 9,000 people became homeless overnight. And it was largely overlooked. Also overlooked is the way the GI Bill got administered following World War II. The GI Bill, responsible for kind of the economic boom in our country uh, following World War II, it was for veterans who sacrificed, who risked their lives to keep freedom in this world. And so the government says, let's help them out by giving them this GI Bill, help them get uh, loans uh, that would help with tuition so they could go to college, uh, low interest mortgages so they could get a home and, and begin wealth building. And just look at some of the stats for how this happened because it was distributed very differently if you were a white veteran compared to a black veteran. In Mississippi in 1947, 3,200 VA loans were ready to go out to veterans of World War II. In Mississippi, 3,200, only two of them went to black borrowers. And it's not just a southern thing. In the north, places like New York and New Jersey, 67,000 VA loans ready to go out, and less than 100 went to non-whites. I, I used to be uncomfortable with the phrase white privilege because there was so much of the history of our country and particularly the black people of our country that I had simply overlooked. White privilege does not mean you're not a hard worker. It doesn't mean there are no obstacles for you to try to work your way over if you're white. White privilege, as simply as I can put it, and this is way too simple, but it means that it's a whole lot more comfortable to be white in America than black in America, and that needs to change. If we're serious about being followers of Jesus Christ, Jesus who casts the vision, he sends his 12 disciples out to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. I love living in central Iowa. I love living in America. But I also want my black brothers and sisters to love living here. And so you and I might just need to get reacquainted with this vision for life in the kingdom of God that Jesus proclaims. 
by the time we get to the book of Revelation and the picture of heaven that gets described, every nation, every tribe, every language, it's a beautiful picture of diversity. I want my black brothers and sisters to know there is a God who sees them and loves them with a perfect love. And there's me, I see them sometimes, and and I love them with a love that is far from perfect. I've got some growing to do. I'm guessing we all have some growing to do. For whatever reason, Jesus has said this mission, the kingdom of God, I'm giving it to you, the body of Christ, to work, to work. It's going to be hard work and uncomfortable work to figure out what does it look like to bring heaven and earth together. We can't do it on our own strength. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. But this is a big part of the vision that God has for us. You read through the 10 for 10 vision of hope. And a big part of what we're talking about is how do we bridge racial divide? How do we heal that? It's one of the things that we believe God wants us to be about. So here's an uncomfortable prayer that I would challenge some of you to begin praying. Jesus, show me how my love of comfort is causing me to overlook my neighbor's discomfort. Show me how my love of comfort is causing me to overlook my neighbor's discomfort. I wonder if you would stand. I'd like to pray for us before we sing our last song together. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for the opportunity to gather and to worship you. And I pray, Lord, that as we've worshiped you today, both things have happened. We have encountered you, our God, in a way that that gives us the comfort that we need. There's something good and important about two or more gathering together in your name and your presence being here with us and your presence brings peace. Your presence brings comfort. I pray, Lord, that that has happened today. And I also pray that you have encountered us in a way that makes us a little uncomfortable today. In a way that challenges us to say, what is that next step of growth for me? What are the ways that I can be used by you, Lord, as an agent of healing those things that are broken and divisive in this world? Oh, none of us have what it takes. To, we don't have the power to do it, but Lord, you do. You do, Lord. And so we ask for your power. We ask for you to do a miracle because sometimes this stuff seems so big and it's been happening for so long that we can believe it will never change. It's hopeless. But this is Lutheran Church of Hope and you are a God of hope and we put our hope in you and we ask for a miracle and we ask in Jesus' name, amen.